Today's scripture comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask now that your grace and mercy would be upon us as we come before you, hearing your word. Lord, you promised that you would be with us and that you would be faithful every time your saints gather under the banner of the gospel by the summoning of your spirit on this, the Lord's day. Father, regardless of where we are in our lives right now, whatever trouble or hardships that we may be dealing with, Father, speak to your people and encourage them with your word. Help us to see the truth that we have in our possession, the truth that liberates us from any sense of joylessness, fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. Help us to be people of great faith because we have faith in the great one, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, as you know, uh, Christianity is not the only religion out there today. Across this globe and even within our own city are a vast array of various faiths and religions that people are living day to day of our lives and their lives as well. And yet there is something to be said when it comes to the uniqueness of Christianity because it is true. There is something very unique about the faith that we profess And that is, we have a certain kind of influence, not necessarily a a good influence, but it is an influence nevertheless. And you know what that is? Christianity, for some reason, is able to give birth to numerous cults, to many syncretistic religions, and a lot of superstitious folklore and myths. No other faith can give any sort of boasting and matching to the ability of our faith in creating a vast array of cults, religions, and spin-offs like the Christian faith. I mean, if you just did a quick survey of all the various myths and lores and legends and, and cults that have come out of our faith, you can find some tie historically or theologically to Christianity, which means for some mysterious reason, again, our faith is uniquely ripe for producing false teachings and therefore false teachers. And as a result, many people who may never have been exposed to the Orthodox Christian faith but have to these cults and various religions will come to the conclusion that that must be what Christianity is really all about. And the question is, as followers of Jesus, what do we do when we find ourselves in that kind of diverse context where people can misunderstand you and the faith that you live by, the faith that you seek to share as 
hope for them when they've already dismissed it in its false various forms. We're beginning a new series today through the book of Galatians, and we'll be going through this book throughout the remainder of the year and the beginning of next year with some breaks for our Advent series and our vision series. And today, the Apostle Paul is going to help us be able to decipher how we can make sure that we, as well as the people we try to influence, don't fall under false teaching and how we can ensure that we are guarded against that as well as helping others understand the true teaching of the Christian faith. And if you're here today investigating Christianity, I especially hope that you'll pay attention to today's sermon, because if by chance you have been turned off, maybe even repulsed by what you believe to be Christianity, maybe you'll come to find that the thing that you're repulsed by isn't really Christian at all, but maybe a false version of it, thereby opening your heart and your mind to reconsider that maybe Christianity is what we Christians claim that it is. So let's begin by looking at three points for today's message. Number one, let's talk about the formula of false Christian teaching. Then we're going to talk about the somethings of false Christian teaching. And then we're going to end it with the true Christian teaching. The formula of false Christian teaching, the somethings of false Christian teaching. And finally, we're going to end it with true Christian teaching. Let's begin by talking about the formula of false Christian teaching. If you have our passage up, let's skip down to verse 6 and 7, where we read Paul saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, just in case it's not obvious to you, Paul is quite angry quite upset at the people who's writing to the Galatians. There you're thinking, why is that? Well, according to biblical scholars, they tell us it's because of a noticeable absence of something very characteristic of Paul's letters. If you ever read any of other of Paul's letters, like to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians, he always starts off with a general greeting. And then he spends a few moments of talking about how thankful he is for the people he's writing to, how much he loves them, how much affection that he has for them, how much he's so devoted to them in, their, in his prayers. For example, listen to his opening statements to the, uh, to the people of Philippians. To the Philippians, this is uh, chapter 1 of that book, starting in verse 3 we read, Every time I think of you, Philippians, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for you with joy. This is what's missing in the book of Galatians. There is no joyful excitement, bragging, gratitude, thanksgiving for these Galatians. It's it's kind of the equivalent of when you come home, husbands, after a long day of work, you go up to your wife and you say, honey, it's so good to see you. I missed you. I hope you had a wonderful day. And without saying a word, she just says, dinner's on the table and goes into her room. After wiggling out of your arm, the absence of affectionate words in that moment clearly should indicate to you, husbands, that she is not happy, right? That she is upset. And that same idea applies here. The absence of any words of gratitude, any words of affection should tell us that Paul is very unhappy with the Galatians. And in fact, if you read again what he says in verse six, you come to discover why he's so upset. Read it again with me. I am astounded or I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Apparently, These Christians in Galatia, as far as Paul can tell, is abandoning God. They are deserting God. Why? Because they've allowed themselves to come under the influence of false teaching, or as Paul puts it, a different gospel. And if you read the other letter, if you read the whole letter, excuse me, of the book of Galatians, you can come to understand what this 
false teaching is and who is responsible for it. Basically, a bunch of outsiders, Jewish teachers, who claim they're a Christian, but in fact they are not, came into these churches that Paul had started, and they're trying to convince and persuade people that in order for them to be pleasing to God, they need to be Jewish, right? You see, these Jewish teachers, also known as Judaizers, believe that in order for a follower of God to truly receive his saving grace, in order for them to be favored and blessed by God, requires them to obey the Jewish laws, to follow the Jewish precepts and traditions and customs of the Jewish faith as it's outlined in the Old Testament. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, Paul, why is that a problem? After all, isn't the Old Testament part of the Christian Bible? Aren't you, Paul, also a Jew as well? A Jew of Jews, as you say? And isn't our Messiah the king of the world, the God of all? Isn't he the king of the Jews? Isn't he truly Israel's king? So why would you have this issue of these teachers coming into where you call them false brothers or, or false teachers and say that they're wrong? Well, if you fast forward to chapter 3 of this book, he tells you exactly why he's bothered by it. We're starting in verse 10. We read, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture says, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ, listen, has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When we was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Here, Paul makes crystal clear. No one is made right by obeying the law. No one is capable of being right with God. No one is able to come under God's good graces through obedience of the law of God. So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, why does, bother, why does God even bother giving us the law in the first place? Well, it's because of this. God wants to make sure that you understand something that many of us are in denial. You see, the problem is not the Old Testament law. It's not that the Old Testament laws are dysfunctional. Rather, the Bible would say, we are dysfunctional. It's not that the law of God is dysfunctional. It's because we are dysfunctional. In fact, later on in chapter 3, Paul states that one of the main reasons why God gave the law in the first place is so that we would be aware of this dysfunctionality in us. You see, the reason why God gives us the law isn't to rub it in our face of how inadequate we are, like he's some evil professor who just takes his jollies out of failing his students on purpose. Rather, he's trying to break through the stubbornness of the human ego that basically says, I can do it. You guys have little kids? who say that to you a lot, either as a parent or as a teacher, you're trying to help them to do something like, I don't know, um, swim, <laughs> even though they've never been in the water before, I can do it, right? Or they're trying to put on their clothes even though they can't even change themselves. I can do it. There is something stubborn about the human heart that refuses to believe that they are broken, that they are sinful, that they are incapable of truly obeying God. And as a result, they have this mindset that they can depend on themselves in order to be in right standing with God, to be pleasing to God, to be under God's good graces, all because of me, me, me. That's why God gave the law, because there is nothing that shatters the ego, that humbles the soul, 
and puts people in their right place by confronting them of their own inability. That's why the law was giving. And this is why Paul hates these Judaizers. Because according to these Judaizers, these false teachers, they were saying the exact opposite. They were saying something to the effect of, oh, sure you can depend on yourself. I mean, you can't fully depend on yourself. Yeah, we need to give some lip service to Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus. But you know what else you need? You need to obey God's law. You need to supplement what Jesus provides because Jesus by himself ain't enough. You need to add to what Jesus did for you on the cross by what you're willing to do for God through your obedience to his laws. That's what these false teachers were were teaching. And here we come to discover the formula, the standard formula of false teaching. And you know what it is? You've heard this before. Jesus plus something equals God's favor, God's love, and mercy, right? Jesus plus something equals, actually, I shouldn't say condemnation and death. That was a mistype. I'm so sorry. Please take that down right away. How embarrassing. <laughs> Jesus plus something equals God's mercy, God's love, right? Who, who wrote that? It was me. I was really tired. Jesus plus something equals God's favor, God's love, God's mercy, right? That's the formula of false teaching now i'm going to talk later about what these various somethings are but for now you need to understand that according to paul these somethings are very bad very very bad in fact he tells us why in verse eight listen again excuse me verse seven listen again to what he says not that there's another one that is another gospel but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of christ you see that word distort if you have a pen or highlighter you might want to underline it because if you go back to what it says in the original greek it literally means to contaminate To contaminate something. You guys know what it is to contaminate something. It's to change something that is pure and life-giving into something that is impure and therefore life-threatening. So, for example, you're out in the woods somewhere, trekking along, doing some, some rigorous hiking, and you come across a natural spring. Very pure, very clean, very, uh, fresh water. And just as you're about to kneel and scoop down a a handful of this fresh water, you look over and you see a bunch of deer defecating in that stream. Uh Uh-oh. Now, something that was life-giving is now life-threatening. Something that was pure now becomes impure. Paul says that is what happens when you add something plus Jesus to come to this conviction that God loves you, God's for you, and God is, is with you simply because of Jesus plus this something that you have added into the mix. Paul says, by doing that, you have now taken the pure gospel and made it impure because you have contaminated it with something that no longer makes the gospel life-giving, but you now make it life-threatening. And so here we come to now ask, what exactly are these various somethings? Well, Paul identifies them for us uh, in this passage. So let me do that now by going to my next point, the somethings of false teaching. Read again with me verse 8 to 10 of our passage where Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed as we had said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? Listen, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here in these verses, Paul identifies two different somethings that are so prevalent in this 
formula of false teaching. But before I tell you what those two somethings are, let's backtrack a little bit and first linger on the first something that I brought up in my first point earlier on in the message, okay? And that something is the Old Testament laws. As I said before in my first point, these false teachers were convincing the Christians of Galatia to not simply put their faith in Jesus, but also to add to it their obedience to God's law. Okay, this was the particular manifestation of the false teaching that these Judaizers wanted. And you know what? This false teaching is still prevalent today because whether you recognize it or not, and I'm sure you do, is that there are tons of churches today that will always tell you, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus. Yeah, you need to have the blood of the lamb covering you. But you know what? That ain't enough. You need to make sure that you're not just buying into this whole easy believism that promotes license to sin. No, you need to make sure that if you really want to know God loves you, he's for you, you need to obey the Old Testament laws. In fact, some of these guys will even be more audacious than that. They'll say, yeah, you not only have to obey the Old Testament laws, but you need to obey these other rules that I elevate as laws. Like you got to come to every you know, early morning prayer service. You need to read your Bible every single day, three chapters a day. You need to come to church every single Sunday, which you should. But you know, they'll say, yeah, you, it's the law. Those of us who grew up going to church, you recognize this false teaching because it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's the kind of false teaching that we grew up with. Sad to say, it's legalism, legalism. And for those of you here investigating Christianity, you're thinking, what is that? Well, it's basically the belief that says in order for God to approve of me, in order for me to be under God's good graces, in order for God to show his affection and his and his mercy and grace to me is that I must not only believe in Jesus, but I must obey that the foundation The basis of why God loves me is not just Jesus, but it's also because of me. Now, at first you might think, well, wait a minute, Pastor John, doesn't Scripture clearly say that God desires obedience? Doesn't Jesus say in his own words that those who love me will obey me? So are you actually saying that obedience is not part of it? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that the basis, the primary reason why God loves you is not because of your obedience. It's because of Jesus' obedience. That's the primary, that's the ultimate reason why God has his affections and his favor upon you. Not because of your obedience. Now, why would I say that? You know why? Because if it is true that God's favor is also contingent upon your obedience to his law, you know what that means? That means you can take credit for God's favor upon your life. And if you can take credit That means what? What happens if someone gives you credit? That means the person who gave you credit now owes you, right? They're obligated to give you what is credited to you. When you say, God, I didn't get the job. Why not? I go to church every Sunday. I read your scripture. I participate in Sunday school. I I serve in the church. Where are you, God? How come you're not giving what's entitled to me? You owe me, God. You should forgive me because I'm somewhat of a good person. I do this. I do that. Who are you, God, to withhold your grace and mercy of my life? Do you see? The moment you start thinking that the primary reason why God is for you and loves you is because of what you have done, then you have fallen into this thing known as legalism. And Paul would say, you are accursed and you do not believe in the pure gospel. So that's the first something. Now let's move on to the second something 
that Paul identifies as another common variable in this formula of false teaching. And this is what I call the supernatural experience something. Read again what he says in verse 8. It says, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, I want to focus for a moment this reference to angels that Paul makes in verse 8. Now, I know for some of you, you may think that in the days of the Bibles, uh, Bibles, Bible, right? Angels were popping up everywhere, right? That angels were just showing up and it was a normal occurrence to where an average Joe would have an angel come up to them and they'd be like, oh, what up, angel? How you been? Right? If you read scripture carefully, whenever a person encounters an angel, you know what they're doing? Ah! They're, they're terrified. Why they're terrified? Because this is not normal. All right? Something very supernatural, something very crazy, something unusual, something mystical and euphoric is happening to this person that is encountering this angel, which is why 100% of the time, what do people do when an angel comes into their presence? They fall on their face. Right? And they become overwhelmed physically, emotionally, psychologically. And it becomes such a euphoric experience. Right? Now, why does Paul bring all of these connotations up when he's talking about false teaching? Because he knows. He knows that there are some churches during his day and also churches today. That will say, unless you have experienced a certain kind of supernatural, euphoric, emotional experience, then your faith is at best subpar, or someone goes so far and say, that's not real faith. Unless you can speak a certain utterance, unless you've received a second blessing, unless you have encountered a supernatural vision, your faith is not real, or maybe it's just barely real. Sound familiar? There are so many who would claim that the, that, that the core essence of how you can know whether God is for you, God loves you, and God favors you is if you've experienced this kind of supernatural, emotionally saturated, psychologically booming experience that is very mystical in nature where people are crying, people are doing crazy laughing and convulsing on the ground like Ken or Ryle just did a Aryukin on them on Street Fighter. You know, it's just this overwhelming sensory overload. And yet, look at what Paul says of such people who would claim such thing. If any person preaches this to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Paul makes it clear that if you add mystical, supernatural, emotionally driven, psychologically booming experience as a litmus test to supplement with Jesus to ensure that God truly is for you and loves you? He says, that's false teaching. Even if that encounter, that experience is a real, genuine experience. Let's go back to the angel situation. You know, one of the tendencies that happened whenever certain people, and I'm not talking about like like low-tier Christians, I'm talking about solid, devout, disciples of jesus like i don't know maybe the apostle john right one of the inner core of jesus's crew when someone like that even encountered a jesus you know what they would do they would have a tendency to worship the angel see this is the problem when you fall into this kind of false teaching and that is you can worship the experience instead of worshiping jesus 
let me say that again. When you fall under the victim of this kind of false teaching, you care more about the experience and having it rather than being with Jesus and having Jesus. Listen to what it says in Revelation 22, starting in verse 8. I, the apostle John, and the one who heard and saw all these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me, but he said, no. I would add, dummy, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets, as well as all who obey what is written in this book. Worship only God. It is possible to take genuine, legitimate, Holy Spirit-driven spiritual experiences and make that into an idol as a replacement to Jesus himself. Because that's the formula of false teaching. It's Jesus plus my speaking in tongues. Jesus plus a prophetic utterance. Jesus plus the second blessing. Jesus plus, Jesus plus. That's how I know God is for me. That's how I know God loves me. Paul says, no. If that is your conviction, he would say, you have fallen victim to false teaching. And if you teach that teaching to others, you are accursed. You are accursed. Now, let's go to the final and third category of something that Paul identifies. And I call this the cult of personality something. Listen to what he says in verse 8. But even if we, even if we, 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 or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. Paul is identifying himself as well as some other prominent uh, Christian leaders at this time and says to the Galatians, look, even if me, you know, your spiritual father or one of my associates like Mark and Barnabas, you know, the famous leaders of the Jerusalem, even if we told you a gospel different than the one we initially told you, reject us, okay? We are a curse. See us as a curse of God. See us as false teachers, why is Paul saying this? What's he getting at? He's simply getting at this. No individual, no matter how profound they may see, no matter what impact they may have had in your Christian life, no matter how popular they are in social media, no matter if they're part of the Gospel Coalition Council, no matter if they work at Redeemer or New Creation Fellowship because we have a similar stature as Redeemer, you know, or, or whatever, right? Even if I said something to you contrary to what the Gospel teaches, Paul would say, I am a curse. Reject me. I am teaching you false teaching. He knows that one of the things that can drive people down the wrong road is for people to get so influenced, so impacted by a particular individual or a group of people and say, you know what, whatever you say, I will believe. Whatever you want me to do, I will do unquestioningly. You know, a lot of cults, from ancient to modern, all originate with that one individual. That's why many of them are named after them, right? The Marcionites are named after Marcion, right? Or even other cults today. The Moonies is named after a man named Moon, right? If your last name happens to be Moon, that doesn't mean that we're associating you with them, okay? So just please, right? And then there's Jehovah's Witnesses. There's Scientology, all of these false cults and movements have a tie to them to one particular person. Because that's what it does. It creates an obsessive loyalty to a person other than Jesus. That's the problem with the cult of personality. Right? And Paul even addressed this in his book to the first Corinthians, to the Corinthians in his first letter. 
where he's rebuking them, where they're saying to one another, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. You know? Paul says, no. Don't let your faith be supplemented by an individual other than Jesus. It's not Jesus plus Pastor John. It's not Jesus plus Pastor James. It's not Jesus plus Tim Keller. It's not Jesus plus Billy Graham. It's only what Jesus says. And whenever I or anyone else would say something that is contrary, contradicting to what Jesus says, that's when you should stop listening to me or that person. Because your primary loyalty is not to an individual unless that individual is Jesus Christ. Because if you're following that trajectory, if you're thinking, oh, you know, my pastor can never be wrong, or that church that I'm a part of can never be off, you've fallen into the cult of personality. And you've fallen victim to false teaching. Okay? False teachers will be accursed. So, here they are. The three somethings that are so prevalent today that is common in the formula of false teaching is Jesus plus legalism, Jesus plus supernatural experience, Jesus plus a cult of personality. These are things that you need to watch out for because those are strong indicators that you are falling victim and you're being ripened to fall into false teaching. But with that said, we can't leave it there. We now have to ask ourselves, okay, now we know how to identify false teaching. How do we properly identify true biblical teaching? And this leads me to the final point, the true Christian teaching. Read again with me verse 3 and 5 of our passage. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, Paul gives us, which I believe is one of the best summaries of the gospel. What does he say? First, is that we need to understand who we are. Second, we need to understand who Jesus is. Third, we need to understand what Jesus did for us. And finally, we need to understand why Jesus did it. When we understand these four things, which Paul is going to show us in just a moment, now we are safeguarded from falling under false teaching because now we can understand true teaching. It's kind of like what they do when they train federal agents to identify counterfeit money. They don't waste their time looking at various kinds of counterfeit money. Do you know what they do? They study the real thing over and over again so that they see any divergence from that as a clear indication of false teaching. So let's do that now. First, Paul tells us who we are when he says that Jesus gave himself to deliver us from our sins. You see that word deliverance? Okay, that word literally means rescue, rescue. Now, here's the question. What does a person contribute when they're being rescued? Nothing, right? A person who's being rescued does nothing whatsoever in causing their being rescued because then they wouldn't need to be rescued. The only thing they do is say what? I need help. I'm stuck. Somebody help me. I'm paralyzed. I'm unable I have total inability in getting out of this situation. That's all they can do. Sound familiar? That's repentance. Repentance. You know what repentance is? It's finally giving up, depending on yourself, and completely relinquishing yourself to the control, to the mercy of someone else to get you out of that situation. And when Paul says, the first thing you need to understand is that you have been rescued. You have done nothing. You have done nothing whatsoever. For God to save you, to love you, to forgive you, to favor you, to be all for you. Nothing. 
It is only because of who you are in Christ. You are a broken sinner, incapable of saving yourself. That's the first thing you need to understand. The second thing you need to understand is who Jesus is. Look again at what he says at the end of verse 5. What is Jesus going to receive? Glory forever and ever. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know, especially in the Old Testament, God repeatedly says what? I will not share my glory with any other person. In the book of Isaiah, he says it numerous times. I will never share my glory with any other. I am the Lord God. The glory belongs to me. Now, with that said, and assuming God is consistent, and he is, what does that tell us about Jesus? If he receives glory, who is Jesus? He's God. And not a God, but he is the God, right? He's not an alien from another planet who got elevated to divine status over planet Earth, contrary to Mormonism. He is not the brother of Lucifer because he's a created angelic being like Lucifer was, contrary to Jehovah's Witnesses, right? He is not a human being who was elevated to divine status because he obeyed perfectly, assuming that other human beings are capable of the same thing, contrary to Gnosticism. Jesus is God. He is God. He never had a beginning. He never had an end. He always is. He always will be. He is God. You need to understand, Jesus is God. The third thing, we need to understand what he did for us. And what did he do? He came into this world as a man to suffer the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, and future, as our scapegoat, as our Savior substitute, so that if we repent, put our faith in him, if we confess that we are helpless without him, we have salvation. Very familiar gospel message. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? Listen to what he says in Paul's letter he says to do the will of the father right according to the will of our god and father you know one of the things that jesus says throughout the gospel is what i've come to do my father's will he never says i've come to do the will of those whom i save okay he says i've come to do the father's will i've come to do the father's will he doesn't say i've come to do the will of those who need me as their savior I have come to do the will of my Father. And you know what the will of the Father is? For Jesus to please him. Jesus' desire is to please the Father. Jesus' desire is not to please you. Let me say that again. Jesus' desire is to please the Father. He's not here. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't go through all that humiliation and pain because he wanted to please you. Because if that were true, that means you carry more weight. You carry more glory than Jesus. Jesus always goes in the direction. In fact, this is true of everyone. Glory goes in the direction of someone who is more glorious than us, has more stature, more weight. For the Son of God, as the man, as the second Adam, there was no one greater to whom he wanted to please than the Father. You know what that means? That means, contrary to some of these praise songs that are out there, Jesus didn't die on the cross because, oh, I love you so much. You're so pleasing. Please just come back. Come back. Come on. Don't you know how much I love you? Jesus doesn't grovel for you. He is not desperate for your approval. But he longs for the approval of his father. That should humble us, right? It should humble you to the point where you realize you know your place. You are nothing compared to the father in Jesus' eyes. And yet, here's where it gets kind of weird. Beautifully weird. What is the will of the Father? To love you as much as he loves Jesus. 
to love you as much as he loves Jesus. That's the Father's will. That's how you don't stay in this groveling state and just start hating on yourself and thinking you're worthless. Because yes, in your sins you are, but in the eyes of the Father, you're as glorious as the Son. You see the beauty of the gospel is that it reminds you that you're both a sinner and a saint. That you're wretched, but yet you're beautiful. And it all gets reconciled through the cross of Christ. So it keeps you humble so you don't think, oh, God loves me, I must be hot stuff. No, you're not pleasing to Jesus. But you know what? Even though that is your state, the Father loves you as much as he loves his own beloved son, his only begotten son. And it balances out between two extremes of utter arrogance and unnecessary self-loathing and hatred. And it puts you right where you need to be. The beautiful balance of the Father's love for you that is unmerited, that is unconditional, and is utterly gracious. Something you can never earn, something that you can never achieve on your own. That is the beauty of the gospel, and that is the bullseye of true teaching. Christian, you need to understand this, because I know many of the things that you struggle with in life really boils down to one thing. Does God really care? Does God really notice me, which we're going to talk about in next week's sermon? Am I really significant? Not just in a general sense, but does God really care? Because I look at my life, I look at the circumstances, and I don't know. And in your desperation, you try to see if you can get God to pay special attention to you by just doing a little bit more obedience, by trying to chase after some sort of experience that you think will legitimize you in his eyes, or by following a specific kind of personality or teaching. I'm just going to tell you now, the way that you get the favor of God is through one person alone. It is through Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law for you, who experienced the true spiritual encounter that he needed to encounter for your salvation, death and condemnation. The one who only provides the real teaching of life, which is the gospel. When you understand these things, Now you'll be able to navigate through all of the complexities and variations that are out there that claim to be Christian, but are not. And I hope and pray that as you encounter, as you pray for your persons of peace, as you seek to live out your faith, that the thing that people will learn from you, that it's not that you get right with God by being morally good because you're not, not by having some weird spiritual experiences that only a select few tend to have, or because you're part of this particular organization or affiliated with that kind of personality. But it's only because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing equals God's mercy, favor, and love. Jesus plus nothing equals God's favor, love, and mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this very important teaching that the book of Galatians exemplifies and teaches over and over father so many of times we feel that you don't favor us and we try to compensate for it by through legalistic endeavors through charismatic uh, experiences or even through following a certain kind of personality father we pray that your grace and mercy will be upon us that we would not fall under these traps especially in these days where there's so many false variations of our faith where so many are trying to woo us away from the one true gospel. Lord, we need the true gospel that only you give to us, Jesus, because the gospel is you. You are the core of the gospel. 
Help us to be faithful to you and loyal to your teaching because of what you have done through us that your teaching tells us that through your death, through your obedience, through your resurrection, we have found unmerited favor um, in the eyes of your Father, our Heavenly Father. Father, I pray that this will be so convicting and so so stubbornly fixed into our hearts and our minds to where we would never let it go. So Father, we know that the enemy is at work in trying to cause us to forget or to compromise it. Please protect us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.